I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Ellie Honig, worked as a federal and state prosecutor for over 14 years at the renowned Southern District of New York, and later as the deputy director of New Jersey's Division of Criminal Justice. He prosecuted and tried cases involving organized crime, public corruption, and human trafficking, achieving convictions of over 100 members of the American Mafia, including members of the Genovese and Gambino crime families. In 2018, he became a CNN senior legal analyst, for which he was nominated for an Emmy Award. He writes a weekly column for Cafe and Vox Media and is the host of two podcasts, Third Degree and Up Against the Mob, and has produced a documentary for CNN on the trial of Adolf Eichmann. He has also published two books. The first, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department, was published in 2021 and became a national bestseller. His recently published second book entitled Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, is the subject of today's interview. So Ellie, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking about this. So first, I want to mention that I don't usually do interviews about current events, mainly because they're already so well covered elsewhere. I haven't until now interviewed anyone about Donald Trump, for instance. However, your recent book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, provides a fresh perspective, at least for me, about an exhaustively covered and often exhausting subject matter, about experiences in the trenches prosecuting powerful people. And in, in my opinion, that makes you an especially credible witness. I'm sorry, credible expert. <laughs> that was a good slip. <laughs> With a fascinating and illuminating viewpoint. That said, it's clear from early on in your book that you draw parallels, imperfect as they are, between the strategies of mafia bosses and those of Donald Trump to skate around the law to minimize the chance of being prosecuted and make it highly likely that even with a conviction that the punishment would be minimal rather than fitting the crime. But first, let's talk a bit about the ethical values that prosecutors are supposed to embody and how you yourself were trained to adopt and uphold them. So thank you for that. A couple of things. It is interesting now to look back at the book because I finished the writing of it about a year ago now. It was late 2022, and there comes this moment in any book that you write where it gets locked, where the publisher just says, look, whatever, anything that happens after X date, we have to physically send it to the printer. You can't add anymore. And it's nerve wracking because both books I wrote have some forward looking predictions to an extent, but developments happen that would impact the book. And so on the one hand, when it locks, you can finally breathe. Okay, I'm done. I, I can't write it. I can't edit it anymore. On the other hand, you're watching news developments saying, oh, that perfectly supports such and such point I made, or, oh, that complicates such and such a point that I made. You ask about the ethics that were taught as prosecutors. I guess the first and most important one is prosecutorial discretion, meaning the practice of being a prosecutor is not robotic. It is not mechanical. It is not evidence meets elements A, B, C. Those are the elements of a crime, hence we charge a crime. There is, I think, far more just individual discretion, judgment that comes to bear in prosecutorial decision-making than people sometimes understand. And we talk about that explicitly. Should we charge this case? Is this the right thing to do? How should we charge this case? Should we subpoena this witness? How should we run this investigation? Because you recognize, and it takes time, it takes years, but you do recognize that every decision that you make as a prosecutor does impact other people's lives, sometimes in very dramatic ways. That's a key theme of really both of my books. 
The other sort of big principle, and it's one we strive for, is of course that everyone is to be treated equally. It's often said of Donald Trump, no, no one can be above the law. And that is a theme of my book. But I will say one theme that has emerged in my mind and in my public commentary since this book published, and it published about eight, nine months ago, is there are ways that I believe that Donald Trump is actually being treated unfairly. In some respects, I think that what prosecutors are doing to Donald Trump does get to the fringe of violating his constitutional rights and is not the way that prosecutors would treat any other case. So we can talk about both of those things, but I've been critical over the years of prosecutors in both respects. I think DOJ in particular, but prosecutors were too soft and too slow to charge Donald Trump. And I think now that they have, in some instances, they're going about their business in a way that's not fair, not properly respectful of his constitutional rights. That's really interesting. I think I want to hold on that and get back to that later. But could you also talk about uh, some other of your prosecutorial values that, that you bring up that really pertain not just to Trump, but to anybody? A big look, you have to be fearless. You have to be willing to go after, in, in the Southern District of New York at least, we pride ourselves on going after the most powerful people. That can be difficult for reasons that I lay out in the book. As you say, a lot of times using my own stories, my own trial experiences. But like with any job, as a prosecutor, there's an easy way out. You can always charge the low hanging fruit and rack up a bunch of guilty pleas and call it a day and that'll be fine. But it takes a little bit of extra drive and sometimes work and sometimes spine to go after the really tough targets. And I talk in the book about times when I did that, sometimes successfully, sometimes not successfully. You mentioned the mafia sort of structure. And as I went about this book, looking at Donald Trump, I think, as the predominant figure, but others as well, I realized that a lot of the techniques and tactics that I was became familiar with from going after mafia bosses and other powerful mafia people are really used in other contexts as well, in the political world, in the corporate world, and in just the, the halls of power in general. So I think that's another important prosecutorial ethic. And it's not as if politicians necessarily pick up a, a mob boss's legal book. It's just that the principles of manipulating the system are appealing to both groups. I think that's right. I, I don't think anyone's saying, let me act like a mob boss. And I don't think uh, mob bosses are saying, let me act like a CEO. I think that, But I think there is a common core of tactics, techniques, and principles that protect powerful people. And I think all sorts of powerful people, legitimate and illegitimate, criminals and non-criminals, understand to varying extents how to tap into that. And, and I imagine there's a price to be paid for going after a high-level figure and failing. So that, would be, so that would be one reason to hesitate until you really have all your ducks in a row, or at least think you do. Sure. Yes, I think that's right. I think you can expect often a more intense fight, a better funded defense from a powerful person. If it's a public case and you charge someone who's powerful but don't succeed, you can rightly expect blowback from that. I've declared a moratorium on this quote because it's become so cliche, but it fits. But I, I can't hear one more person say it, but I'll, I'll just do it one more. If you shoot at the king, you better hit him. If you go at the boss, you better hit him, whatever, however you want to phrase that. It, it's become overdone. People quote it from the wire or whatever, but it is true. 
So let's talk now about the strategies that mafia bosses use, and then we'll see how these patterns resemble those uh, that Trump uses. And, and also, I just want to say I really enjoyed the book. Um, it was very well written and really interesting. And you, and you weave together the examples from both worlds, from the prosecution of mob bosses and the prosecution of Trump, which hadn't happened yet, <laughs> hadn't started yet when you finished the book. I'm sure we'll learn about the additional legal advantages that Trump has had as president, ex-president, and public figure. But first, let's talk about the mafia bosses. How do they minimize their legal exposure year after year, decade after decade? And along the way, give us a sense of what it's like to prosecute high-level mafia figures. I'm glad to hear you say that, first of all, about the book. My number one task was I do not ever want any of my books or writing to feel like homework. I don't want anyone to be like, oh, gosh, I got to slog through this. So I do try to keep it conversational and, and story-based. And I tell an awful lot of stories about what we do as prosecutors, trial stories, that kind of thing. If I had to boil it all down to one word that mob bosses and other powerful people use, it's insulation. They know how to protect themselves. And I have a different chapter on each of the ways that they do that. I'll give you one example that I think has really proven out since this book came out, especially. One of the things that Donald Trump does that I think people are sometimes shocked by, but I would encounter all the time, is I think everyone knows and understands that wealthy, powerful people pay for these legal mega teams, these dream teams, whatever you want to call it for themselves, right? O.J. Simpson is a sort of famous example where he had Alan Dershowitz and all these Johnny Cochran. But you'll see that even more so if you ever charge a CEO or a powerful politician. They will spend tons of money and get this sort of over-the-top brand of lawyering, which not categorically is not necessarily better. But generally speaking, more lawyering makes life more difficult for prosecutors. You'd rather have $10 million to spend on lawyers than $500,000. It will position you better. But the thing that people, I think, don't realize is that real power players pay for lawyers, not just for themselves, but for other people around them. We would see this all the time in the mob cases. We would do a takedown of, let's say, 18 defendants. You would know it was going to be the same 18 lawyers or pulled out of a group of 25 or 30 lawyers, well-known mob lawyers who would be put on all of these defendants. And the reason for that is the boss and the family would pay for them. Why would you do that? Why would you spend all this money? Not to be a good friend, but to protect yourself. Because if a lower ranking person on a case has a lawyer who's paid for by the boss, by the family, it inherently becomes much more difficult for that person to flip, to cooperate with prosecutors for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're scared. They think, how am I going to go to my lawyer and say, gee, uh, Mr. Attorney, who's been paid for by the boss, I'm thinking about flipping. The fear is that the attorney will notify the bosses and that they'll be in danger. The other thing is just straight up financial. Lawyers are very expensive. And if you're in that position and you say, I want to break away and hire my own lawyer. A, everyone's going to think you're flipping, which could put you in danger, as I said before. B, you're going to have to pay. And I don't know that people understand. I give some data on this in the book, just how expensive it is to hire a criminal defense lawyer. You're well into the six figures, often seven figures, if you want to hire a private defense lawyer and go to trial. I quote a friend in the book who sometimes he's a very high powered, very elite criminal defense lawyer. And he tells prospective clients sometimes not to be a jerk. He'll say, you can't afford me. And he doesn't say that to be arrogant. He says that because he's like, this isn't going to work just as a reality. So it's really difficult. And I tell a story in the book about one case where we had to go to extreme cloak and dagger measures 
because we found out that a guy who was pretty low on the indictment, one of the lower ranking guys, wanted to flip and we really wanted him to flip, but we had to go through some remarkable maneuvers to get him a new lawyer, to pull him out of the prison. And I tell that story in the book. What people don't realize is this happens all the time. In corporations often will pay for lawyers for all of the people who get subpoenas, for all the people who might be involved in a criminal investigation. It's not necessarily evil. I want to say that right up front. A lot of times people want to have their lawyers paid for them. They can't afford lawyers. Uh, A lot of times lawyers play by the book and they're ethical and they won't prevent someone from cooperating. But it is done often and it can have similar effects. I should note, and I do note in the book, DOJ itself has actually become quite permissive of this practice. Up until 2008, the stated written policy of DOJ is if a corporation or a powerful entity is paying the legal fees for all of its employee or for several of its employees, we count that against the corporation in assessing whether they've been cooperative. In 2008, DOJ changed its policy with the stroke of a pen and said, actually, we're fine with this. We're not going to hold it against you. And they have this ridiculous justification there, which I make fun of in the book, where DOJ says, we believe that corporate America shares the same interest in transparency as we do at DOJ. Really? (laughs) I don't. Um, (laughs) Even if you think the best of DOJ, I I don't think they have the same, uh, of corporate America, I don't think they have the same interest in transparency as, as DOJ does. But Donald Trump, and I wrote about this in the book because it was just starting to emerge, he, as a habit, will pay for, or more precisely, have his organization, his company, or his PACs, his political action committees, pay for legal fees. And I list some examples in the book, and we're learning more and more about this, about witnesses who've had Trump-provided lawyers who haven't been able to come fully clean. We've learned that it's a very common practice by Donald Trump to have his political entities, his business entities, pay for lawyers for other people around him. And more and more, we're seeing examples of where people have not been willing or able to come fully clean and cooperate until they've broken free of those Trump-provided lawyers. The best example to me being Cassidy Hutchinson. We remember her testimony in front of Congress last year. She's now come out with a book of her own. She has said she was not able to tell the full truth and in fact did not tell the full truth while she had a Trump paid for lawyer. But when she figured out a way to get free of that lawyer, she came forward with more details with the full story, with the full truth. Did she get funding from elsewhere? How did she manage that? How did she manage to break free? I don't know that she has said that exactly publicly, but she has said publicly that she had a huge financial concern. She's 26 now. She was 24, 25 at the time. She didn't have a lot of money. Here's the Trump organization paying for a high caliber lawyer for her. And she ended up breaking free of that lawyer and getting her own lawyer. I'm surmising she either had to scrape together money from family or friends and or get some sort of negotiated or reduced rate from the lawyers who she hired. She hired lawyers from an outstanding private law firm who I assure you are not cheap under ordinary circumstances. Yeah, I would think that she maybe would have funding available. One of the things that Michael Cohen said is that Trump would always be a step or two behind in payments of the lawyers. So that one of the threats is just to cut off payment that's still owed. Yeah, Michael, who I've come to know and I talked to for the book, has a long, really contentious, obviously contentious history with Donald Trump. Michael and Donald Trump have actually been suing each other. In fact, Trump's lawsuit against Michael Cohen for some crazy number, $50 million or something, was just thrown out, I think, last week. But yeah, Michael basically said with his experience, Trump would pay for the lawyers, but he'd always be a step or two behind payment. 
so maybe they couldn't leave or to really up his leverage. Yeah. Yeah, one of the points I was thinking we'd get to later, but maybe it's relevant now, is you make a really good point that the witnesses to take down the higher level mafia boss or the higher level politician has to also be criminally in, in, involved because the people who know what's going on are part of the, the conspiracy and, and you're not going to get, what, what was it, nurses and, and nuns? Yeah. School teachers. I don't think I made it religious. Yeah. This is a classic back and forth that happens at virtually every federal trial that involves a cooperator, which is virtually all federal trials. The first thing, and I say this in the book, if all you did was base your understanding on TV, on law and order and movies, you would think that the vast majority of cases get solved with like lab magic, with forensics, with blood spatters, with DNA, with these cleverly obtained confessions. The reality is the lifeblood of good prosecution, especially in the federal system, is cooperators. And people may not like that, but that's reality. I I don't think I told this story in the book, but my first mob case I ever did, at the time I was going to this old school Italian barber in Manhattan. He actually had a little like stall in the Woolworth building. He's probably, I'm not sure if he's around anymore, but- When I went to him, I did my first mob trial. It was against the Genovese family. We got a conviction and I went to him for my haircut after the trial was over. And I said, hey, did you see what happened in the newspapers? He said, yeah, I followed it in the newspaper. He goes, good job. He goes, but I got to ask you one question. Did you have to do it with rats? I was like, whoa, okay. And then he proceeded to give me a a straight blade and everything. He's fine now. But the fact of the matter is it's not glamorous to to make your case with criminals. But that's the reality. And if you are, let's say, Donald Trump, you have the benefit of surrounding yourself with people, generally speaking, who are in on it with you. And so Michael Cohen's a perfect example. When Michael Cohen flips on Donald Trump, what's the attack on Michael Cohen? Folks, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he's a liar. He's a fraudster. He's a perjurer. You know how you know that? He's already been convicted of all that. He already pled guilty to that. You're going to believe this guy? right? That's the standard defense attack and it can carry some real weight. Now, prosecutors know how to come back from that. And and again, this is the the battleground a lot of times at these trials, which is to say, of course, he's a criminal. He committed crimes with and for this guy, this defendant. Why do you think Michael Cohen committed all these crimes? Why did Michael Cohen go, go in front of Congress and lie about Donald Trump's efforts to build in Moscow? Because he was protecting Donald Trump, because he was doing that for Donald Trump. But it's a built in benefit that smart criminal bosses have, which is if anyone flips on them, there's really two parts to it. Part one is that person's inherently going to be a criminal. The second part, and Trump is really masterful about this, and mob bosses are really good about this, is they know how to convey their instructions and directions without quite saying it explicitly. I think the chapter title is called Say It Without Saying It. And this is a classic thing with mob bosses. They talk in the book about if you're ever up on a wiretap on a mobster, they're never going to go, hey, did you break that guy's face? Did you shoot that guy? Did you collect cash from that guy? They're going to go, hey, did you did he see the thing about the thing? Did he see the guy <laughs> about the thing? Yeah. And it's like in the movies, right? The quote, or I refer to the great scene in Goodfellas where they're at the barbecue and Polly, who's the boss, is sitting there and one of Polly's guys goes over and whispers something in Polly's ear and Polly just nods at him. And the voiceover from Ray Liotta, who plays Henry Hill, Ray Liotta said something like, for a guy who moved all day, 
Paulie didn't talk to six guys or something like that, which is very much consistent with with my experience as, as a mob prosecutor in the real world. Before we go on to Donald Trump, let's talk about just a couple of more things about what is common between, I guess, mafia bosses and high-level figures, political figures. And one of them is that you can contribute to the DA's re-election campaign. That was, <laughs> that was really... That was really an eye-opener. I've been lucky in that I've only ever worked for non-elected prosecutors. Uh, All federal prosecutors are not elected. We do not elect the United States Attorney General. We do not elect U.S. attorneys or, of course, assistant U.S. attorneys. Most states elect their state-level AGs, but not New Jersey, where I worked. Our New Jersey state AG is appointed by the governor. We're one of, I think, seven states that does not elect their AG. And even our county-level prosecutors, which are often called DAs, usually DAs are elected. In New Jersey, they're called county prosecutors. They're not elected either. So I've never had to worry about that. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of prosecutors in this country are elected, and necessarily they raise money. And there are shocking instances out there of campaign donations paying for access. And while you can't necessarily say there was a quid pro quo or direct link between the donation and the result, boy, oh boy, does it look bad. And boy, oh boy, does it undermine public confidence. So to me, the most glaring example of this is the former Manhattan DA, Cy Vance. This is a story that was deeply and remarkably reported Gosh, I forget if it was the New Yorker or the Atlantic, but I credit them in the book. Whoever reported this broke the story of years ago, before Donald Trump was president, long story short, the Manhattan DA had two of Donald Trump's adult children. It was Ivanka and I believe Don Jr., basically dead to rights on a real estate fraud case. They were openly falsifying uh, information about certain rental units they were trying to put out there, certain buildings they were trying to rent out. And really just basically defrauding people. Cy Vance ended up deciding not to charge the case, even though there were people on his team who wanted to charge the case. Not because, let me be careful here. After Cy Vance met with a team of lawyers who had donated tens of thousands of dollars to his campaign. And after the story broke, Cy Vance returned their donations. And then later he took more donations from them. I'm not saying there's a causal link here. I'm not saying Cy Vance is taking bribes. He, he would not do that. But vastly undermines public confidence when you give someone a massive break, contrary to the recommendations of some of the people on the case, and the defense lawyers who get brought in at the last minute have donated tens of thousands of dollars to your campaign. This is how, how the whole lobbying system works. It's not technically bribery because it's not exactly tied to a specific action, but everybody knows that's what's going on. And I should say, I talk about in the book how the U.S. Supreme Court has done nothing but narrow the scope of our federal bribery and corruption laws over the last several decades. And as much as we think of our Supreme Court as divided, six three, six conservatives, three liberals, and they don't agree on anything, and there's some truth to that, you want to find one area where they've all been holding hands and singing kumbaya together? It's narrowing and narrowing the scope of corruption laws. And I talk about opinions in here, decisions in this book, where Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the same page as Clarence Thomas, and more recently where Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan were very much in sync with John Roberts and Samuel Alito. And the commonality there is they're shrinking 
the scope and reach of our corruption laws. Yeah, I, I was going to bring that up toward the end of the interview, but as long as you brought it up now, let's talk about it. I mean, it's just mind-boggling and very disturbing, I have to say, you know, that, that even the most liberal justices would go along with this. What, what's the ex explanation for it? Is it just sheer unconscious bias or, or, or are they mem members of a club that's an exclusive club now? What, what is it? I think what they would say, and they've not commented publicly on this, is this is the law. And it's not about being liberal or conservative. I think both sides would say this. It's about interpreting the way Congress wrote the law. And I think that what, what justices did say in the opinions that I talk about is that prosecutors overextended it. Prosecutors read the law too broadly, extended it to facts that it wasn't intended to apply to. I'll give you one example, the main example that I use in the book. There Actually, there's an interesting link to current news here. The main case that the Supreme Court decided involved a former Virginia governor named Bob McDonnell. And basically, the story was Bob McDonnell and his wife accepted all these gifts, travel packages, luxury items from this one ind individual who was developing this sort of nutritional supplement or something. And it, in return, the allegation was the governor and his wife did all sorts of official favors for this guy. They set up meetings with the state health department. They pushed people to give him certain approvals and to do certain studies. And so that case was prosecuted by DOJ. In fact, interesting footnote, Jack Smith was involved in the prosecution of that case, the same Jack Smith who we now know from the Trump cases. Jack Smith and his team, they tried the case. They got a conviction of the Virginia governor who was sentenced to, I think it was three or so years in, in prison. And then it went up on appeal and the Federal Court of Appeals upheld the conviction. And then it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, which unanimously reversed the conviction. And they basically said, the official acts here, what the official has to deliver it can't just be setting up meetings and access and making recommendations. It has to be a specific, tangible official act like casting a vote or vetoing a law or something, which causes, I think, certainly me to throw up my hands and go, come on, how do you think influence gets peddled? It gets peddled by setting up meetings and pushing people to take certain steps, even if it's not quite as specific as you gave me cash in an envelope, therefore I'm going to vote yes instead of no on this bill. It's As I said, it's very disturbing. We probably could spend a whole hour just on that one case, but we're not going to do that. Let's move on to talking about how Trump's legal strategies are similar to the mafia. What's in common and then what's different? We've already talked about some of them, the, the use of his wealth to pay for lawyers for others, surrounding himself with people who are willing to do to do his will and to help him commit crimes, his ability to communicate his wishes to them without saying it explicitly, his use of threats, his use of intimidation is another one we've not talked about yet. Trump is uniquely able to intimidate people, intimidate witnesses. And we saw it throughout the investigations by Robert Mueller, by others, the impeachments, the January 6th investigation. How often, it's almost like clockwork now. Someone comes out as a witness or we learn that someone's testifying. And what does he do? He attacks them on Twitter or now on Truth Social. And this is a person who has tens of millions of very loyal followers, a very small minority, but some of whom are unbalanced and will do wild, dangerous things. We saw an example of that after his home was searched at Mar-a-Lago last August, when I think it was the same day or the very next day, a Trump supporter 
tried to storm the FBI offices in Ohio and was killed, was shot and killed because he was armed trying to attack the FBI. So there's a real intimidation factor that goes into this. And there's a retribution factor. I talk about how when Trump was impeached, there were 10 Republicans who voted to impeach him. And Trump made a big deal of, I'm going to get rid of all 10 of them publicly. He said one or two of them retired. He said he tweeted something like two down, eight to go. Then he primaried a whole bunch of the other ones. And I forget the exact number, but I think most or all of those 10 are now gone from Congress. Yeah. So this is both a similarity and a difference. The mafia boss has the capacity to send a, a low-ranking person to actually hurt a witness. And, and you know Trump isn't doing that, but instead he has this army of supporters, some of whom, as you say, are, are, are un, imbalanced. It's really, it's an amazing thing. And of course, that's how much better can you get with plausible deniability, to use a Reagan era phrase, than saying, I didn't mean for my deranged supporters to intimidate, harass, threaten, and hurt witnesses. I can't be held responsible for that. Yeah. E- even if a person were to have no fear of any sort of physical retribution, it's still wildly intimidating if you're in that position. If you have tens of millions of people turned against you, threatening you, doxing you, sending threatening letters to your home, calling your voicemail, all of those things happen. And I should say the intimidation factor that mob bosses have also extends beyond the fear of physical retribution. But there is that just intimidation factor, that sort of fear of being ostracized, being branded in the community. Yeah, that it, it is multifaceted both ways. But the, the physical fear is, is quite real. I, mean, I read somewhere that Mitt Romney is spending millions of dollars a day on protection. I don't know if it can't be true, but he's spending an awful, he's spending a lot of money on, to protect himself and his family. Yeah. And I think different people handle that differently. And I've had friends who have come into, who've come crosswise with Donald Trump and I'm fearful for them at times. Yeah. And of course, there are other legal advantages too that Trump has that a mafia boss wouldn't have. So let's talk about some of those. For instance, the one that there's a tradition that sitting pro- sitting presidents can't be prosecuted. That's, you don't have sitting mafia bosses can't be prosecuted. We do love this refrain that no person is above the law. But in the book, I talk about how that's not really true. And the one who sits the most above the law is the president of the United States. And boy, oh boy, did Donald Trump maximize those advantages. Let's take, for example, this notion of executive privilege. This is an idea that first became a formal recognized legal concept under Nixon, because Nixon, of course, he tried to use it in several different contexts, but the most famous one was when the nation learned about the tapes, the fact that Nixon had bugged his own White House, prosecutors subpoenaed those tapes. And Nixon said, no, executive privilege. This case went all the way up to the US Supreme Court, and it was the ultimate win-loss situation for Nixon. The win is we do recognize, we agree with you. There is such thing as executive privilege, President Nixon. So congratulations. The bad news is you don't get to use it here. It doesn't apply here. And you have to turn over the tapes. And a couple of weeks later, Nixon had resigned. Every president dating back to George Washington has used some variation of executive privilege. Sometimes it's gone by other names, other titles. But Nixon was the one who really brought it into the modern era, and his case caused the Supreme Court to recognize it. And by the way, if you think it's not necessarily evil, the the idea behind executive privilege is we want the president to be able to have confidential, sensitive communications with trusted advisors and not worry that they're going to become subject of testimony later. Every president since Nixon has invoked executive privilege to varying extents, but Boy, oh boy, did Donald Trump blow the roof off. There was this famous moment where Donald Trump went out to the White House lawn 
during his presidency and said, we're fighting all the subpoenas. And anyone who thought that he was being hyperbolic there was mistaken because he fought every subpoena. Every time he could, he tried to invoke executive privilege to prevent people around him from testifying. Now, he lost almost all of those. In fact, I think everyone that came to an ultimate decision, he did lose. But he still managed to win some of them by just dragging things out. Look at the Mueller investigation. He managed to keep so many key witnesses away from Mueller. He managed to keep so many key witnesses away from the first impeachment over Ukraine just by dragging things into court. And then the other side just said, we don't have time to let this drag out for a year or two years. And by the way, our courts are to blame for this. And I think our courts have gotten better on this. Don McGahn was Donald Trump's White House counsel, and he was a crucial witness he ended up going to court on executive privilege invoked by Trump. And that thing dragged out for two years. That is the fault of the courts. The courts don't have to take two years. The courts can do these things as quickly as they want. And since then, we've actually seen our courts really speed up the review of these type of contested issues. But executive privilege is one area. There's also the longstanding DOJ policy against indicting a sitting president. Now, again, this goes back to Nixon. And during the Nixon administration, it actually started because of Spiro Agnew, who was Nixon's VP, who ended up leaving office under a cloud of scandal because he was involved in a bribery scandal unrelated to Watergate. But prosecutors started to wonder at DOJ, oh my goodness, are we going to be prosecuting the sitting president or vice president? And DOJ has this group called OLC, Office of Legal Counsel, these legal geniuses who give opinions on these very thorny legal and constitutional issues. And back in the Nixon era, they concluded, again, good news, bad news for Spiro Agnew. Good news for you, Spiro, is we we do not believe we can prosecute the sitting president. Bad news for you, Mr. Agnew, is we do believe we can prosecute the sitting vice president. Later, that policy was re-reviewed by DOJ right after the Clinton impeachment. And they reached the same conclusion. They said, no, we do not believe we can prosecute the sitting president. And so Trump, of course, benefited from that during the Mueller investigation. Mueller, I criticized Mueller. I think he tripped all over himself and turned himself into a pretzel because rather than just saying what he pretty clearly wanted to say, which is, I do find that this is a crime obstruction that Trump committed and that he should be indicted when he's out of office, Mueller got all, if you remember the Mueller report, it was like, I won't say if he did commit a crime because he can't be indicted under our policy and therefore he can't defend himself. But I would say if I could exonerate him, but I'm not going. It was like this bureaucratic mumbo jumbo. Yeah. So there's a tradition of not uh, prosecuting and there's a tradition of not even saying that you're going to prosecute. (laughs) That's the question, right? Like clearly there's a long tradition in policy. And I actually say in the book, it's not quite right to say DOJ cannot prosecute the sitting president. It's more accurate to say DOJ has long decided that it will not even try to prosecute the sitting president. And by the way, I should say, I actually think that policy is correct. And I know, let's take it out of the Trump or Clinton or Nixon context, pick your favorite or least favorite of those president. But I think if we just put it in the broader context, or or if, if we put it in a vacuum, if you look at the DOJ memos, they're actually not really legal memos. They're dressed up to look like legal memos. They have case sites and everything, but there's no answer in the law. There's no case that has answered this. And really what they do is they conclude that as a practical matter, this would be untenable. We cannot have, as part of the executive branch, prosecuting the guy at the head of the executive branch. In fact, under some schools of thought, the president is the executive branch. And If we were to have DOJ prosecuting the sitting president, that would bring our executive branch and our government 
to a crippling standstill. And I do think there's some legitimacy to that. What if DOJ right now, let, let's assume if you love Donald Trump or if you love Joe Biden, but let's take it out of the Trump context. What if DOJ right now, what if Robert Hur, who's the special counsel, were to come back tomorrow and say, I've indicted Joe Biden on the classified documents. We don't know what Robert Hur is going to come out with. We know just last week that he interviewed Biden. But what if he went tomorrow to a grand jury and had an indictment, United States versus Joseph Biden, sitting president? Think of what that would do to our government and what that would do to our ability to conduct foreign affairs. So I actually agree with DOJ's policy. I know it's become easy to rend one's garments, but I do think that's correct. Well, and you might say that it would be difficult to govern if you had a legal guillotine over your head too, with the promise of being prosecuted after. And by the way, you could be prosecuted when you leave office. It's happened to Trump. Let's move on to an, an, another power that, that Trump has had, and that's the presidential power to pardon. And you spent quite a bit of your book talking about that's fascinating, how that is wielded as a weapon. So Donald Trump actually, interestingly, used the pardon power far less than his predecessors. I put the numbers in the book. From memory, Trump issued something like 200 pardons plus commutations, whereas Barack Obama issued about 1,900. Basically, Trump was very sparing with his pardons. But what he did differently was he used pardons to protect himself, unlike any prior president. Now, again, Trump did not invent the shady pardon. Examples go way back. George Bush pardoned people involved in the in the Iran-Contra scandal. Bill Clinton pardoned his own half-brother. And Mark Rich, the billionaire fugitive financier, which prompted a DOJ investigation. But what Donald Trump did is pardon basically anyone who was in position to flip against him and held the line. Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn. I give the stories of each of these folks, but all of these people were either indicted or about to be indicted, and then Trump pardoned them or commuted their sentences. And in return, either they did not testify against him, or in some instances, Manafort and Flynn, they had started cooperating against him and then stopped when he floated publicly the, the prospect of, of a pardon. And then ultimately, they basically walked back their cooperation. They reneged on their cooperation agreements. So Trump really understood that if I can dangle a pardon, if I can make these people believe that I'm going to pardon them, then they've lost all incentive to cooperate because why do people cooperate? To get reduced sentences. They think they're going to get a pardon. That's the ultimate reduced sentence. And so by doing that, Trump really creatively weaponized the pardon power to protect himself in a way that no prior president has done. Yeah, I'm, I'm not the first to say this, but it seems like Trump and, and uh, others in his party have detected all the possible weaknesses in and how the legal system works and exploited them totally. Yeah, Trump is is masterful at that. I don't maybe I, I shouldn't say that in a positive. I don't mean that in a positive sense, but he has whether it's a studied result of him really looking at the legal system and thinking, how can I exploit that? Or perhaps just a natural instinct for survival that he has, or perhaps some combination of those. Few, if any, people in American history have done as much wrong overtly, and yet largely to this, well, to the point where I wrote the book, avoid a consequence. But of course, in the book, I do say, by the time you're holding this book, he probably will be indicted, and that's come true, and, and then some. Yeah, you definitely included that caveat. So I want to talk about one more advantage that the Trump has had, and that's the public following, having 70 million or so followers. And 
the ramifications for that are so incredibly complicated. One, one thing that you mentioned in your book is that maybe one reason things have moved slowly is that Biden had a reluctance about Trump getting prosecuted because he knew that it would overshadow his, the beginning of his presidency. And what kind of crazy consideration is that? And yet it's so real. Not just Joe Biden, but also Merrick Garland. Joe Biden, very early on, I think it was during actually the transition after he had won the presidency, but not yet been sworn in, there was public reporting. And again, I want to say NBC News, but I credit whoever broke the story in the book that Joe Biden had told five of his advisors, five of his closest people that he did not want to see Trump prosecuted. Now, a year and a half or so later, when the when the political winds turned, Biden changed his tune and said he did, not publicly, but said to other advisors, he did want to see Trump prosecuted. But the original reporting, look, Joe Biden's a creature of Washington, D.C. He knows damn well if he says something to five of his advisors, it's going to get out there. Sure enough, there was public reporting he did not want. He just, maybe it came from a Gerald Ford-like move past our long national nightmare, our long national nightmare is over, moving past Nixon. But the original reporting, reliable reporting, was that Biden did not want to see Trump prosecuted. And again, this wasn't based on one source. This is based on five sources. I'm very critical of Merrick Garland in the book because I say in the book, and this has proven out to be 100% correct since the book came out, Merrick Garland did not want to prosecute Donald Trump. Merrick Garland wasted a year and a half giving us rhetoric about we build from the bottom up. We're going to prosecute the people who went into the building, the Capitol, and we're going to work our way up and see where the facts and the law lead us. I say in the book, that's a BS way to build a case. You're never going to get to the top going that way. It sounds good, but it's not, first of all, it's not how good prosecutors build cases. You don't start at the bottom and work your way up. You say, how high can I start? And then you work your way up. Merrick Garland did nothing for a year and a half. And the reporting has since come out that he did not want to deal with this, that inside DOJ people knew you didn't even mention Trump in front of Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland, I'm convinced, was hoping this would just go away, that a year would pass, two years would pass, people would move on and do what what happened with Mueller. Nobody ever followed up on Mueller and everyone went, oh, what are you going to do? Time passed. What happened that changed things was the January 6th hearings in Congress. And they made such a visceral impression and they galvanized public opinion in a way that Merrick Garland and Joe Biden could not ignore it anymore and hope that it just washed away. And only a few months after that did Merrick Garland appoint Jack Smith. And you know how long it took Jack Smith to bring those indictments of Trump? He brought two indictments. One took about eight months. One took about nine months. Jack Smith approached this case exactly the way I was saying in my book, it should have been approached from day one by Merrick Garland. And if Merrick Garland had done that, We would have had Trump indictments in late 2021, early 2022. We would have had the trials already, and we would not be in the jam that we're in right now of four trials gridlocked right up against an election. And by the way, the fault for that sits with Merrick Garland and Fonnie Willis and Alvin Bragg. And people say, oh, Trump has to be rushed to trial. And this will get into the point I was making earlier. Now we're in this mad dash to force Donald Trump to trial before the election, A lot of that fault lies on the prosecutors here for their failures. Yeah, it's really something. And it it shows what a difference there is between the Nixon case and the Trump case, because Nixon was going to be out of political life forever. That's where I can't quite understand the the reasoning that, let's say, Biden would have that, oh, let's get past the, the national nightmare, because you have the threat is still there of Trump uh, regaining office. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. I'm not sure whether Biden was thinking he would be running against Trump again or whether Biden thought it would be good or bad for Trump to be prosecuted. But 
clearly Joe Biden just, again, based on this reporting, wanted to move along and so did Merrick Garland. But the political winds changed and, and political winds do have an impact on prosecutors. So I want to talk about the kind of the contradiction or ambivalence, I'm not sure how you want to put it in your book, that on the one hand, you predict that Trump would ultimately escape prosecution. And of course, that's not true, but maybe ultimately escape. I don't, that's not right. That's not right. I do not predict that Trump will, I say explicitly, he will probably be prosecuted. By or, 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 okay, well, escape conviction in any case. Escape conviction. Okay, I apologize for that. <laughs> but and, But then at the end of the book, you outline how the prosecution should take place in all of the areas. So it seems like on the one hand, conviction is unlikely. On the other hand, here's how you do it. Let me again qualify a little bit what I say in the book. I say his conviction and imprisonment are unlikely. To conviction, I think, is at this point, given that there's four indictments, odds are he's going to be convicted. But I, to this point, I think he will never be imprisoned. And I do lay out at the end of the book, here's how he could have been prosecuted. And my biggest gripe, my biggest criticism of prosecutors is that they took this long. And I think that by taking this long, they have compromised their own ability to go into a courtroom and get a conviction and a sentence of imprisonment. I think it's much harder to say to a jury, in 2024, we want you to convict this guy who is not only a former president, which may be fraught enough, but he's also the current candidate for president. He is one of two people who's up for office. And I say in the book, don't you think there's a chance that if this case gets tried in the middle of 2024, that one juror out of 12 will go, look, I don't like this guy. I think he probably committed these crimes, but I'm not comfortable with the idea of convicting and potentially imprisoning a guy who's one of two candidates who has a 50-50 chance of becoming president. I don't think that's good for our country. I don't want that kind of chaos. It's unfair to do that. And I think prosecutors, by taking that long, have undermined their own ability to get a conviction. I also think it's important to understand, even if there's a conviction, you have many miles to go between a conviction and actual physical imprisonment. Even if Trump gets convicted on one of these cases, let me play through all the various off-ramps. One, it's not a sure thing a judge will sentence him to imprisonment. The Manhattan case, the hush money case, for example, that's probably not a prison case, even if there's a conviction. That's probably a probation case if you look at New York law. Two, I should say before I get into this, if Trump wins the election, forget it. All these cases are done and over. It doesn't matter whether he's been convicted, whatever. He'll dismiss them all or he can't be tried by some state prosecutor while he's the president. But he has to be sentenced to prison. Then he has appeals. He's not going to be, people have this fantasy that Trump's going to be locked up before the election. Absolutely not. Even if he's convicted, he is almost certainly going to get bail pending appeal, which means he gets to stay out on bail until all of his appeals are over, including to the intermediate appeals courts, including potentially to the U.S. Supreme Court. You could have issues there. And then three, there's the possibility, even if the appeal is upheld, you could have a pardon or a commutation. I I don't know how likely it is. People get very worked up when I say this, but it is possible. And by the way, I know people who've worked with Joe Biden who agree with me that it's a realistic possibility, not necessarily saying a probability, but if Donald Trump gets convicted in a federal case and sentenced to federal prison and it goes through all the appeals and it gets upheld, that Joe Biden could commute his sentence. I'm not saying a pardon. I'm saying reduce his sentence to probation, to zero in prison. It's not beyond possibility to me that a 84-year-old, middle of his second term Joe Biden in the year 2026 or whatever it would be, says, look, 
folks, for the same reason I said before, do we need Donald Trump to physically get locked up in federal prison? Or do we want to just say his conviction stays on the books, but we're not going to lock him up. We're going to move on. It's possible. So there's a lot of ways Trump can still get convicted, but not imprisoned. One of the things that you mentioned in your book that we haven't talked about yet is is just the danger to jurors, you know, and and the necessity for the criminal trials to be unanimous, uh, to have a unanimous verdict. You just have to have one person who gets scared that their identity is going to be outed and they're going to be harassed or worse. So that's really difficult. So civil case, civil cases are easier for that reason. Yeah, criminal cases, you have to have a unanimous jury. You need all 12. It's funny because in the book I wrote about sort of one way, but since then I actually think there may be another angle on it. I talk about a case I had where we were trying a mob captain for murder and one of the jurors basically said, sent a note to the judge saying, judge, we're about to convict this guy, but I'm too scared. And then the judge, I give the whole incident in the book, but the judge manages to calm the guy down and they convicted him. But you understand that fear that people have of voting to convict a mob boss, or perhaps somebody like, look, Trump has gone after grand jurors. He's gone after civilians. He's gone after jurors in the cases of his um, his cronies, the Roger Stone case. Donald Trump publicly attacked one of the jurors. That's a very scary thing to be just a normal person serving your jury service and to have 70 million followers threatening you, hating you, phys- uh, excuse me, not physically, verbally attacking you. I do actually think, though, there's potentially a countervailing consideration, which goes the other way, which is imagine a trial in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump is charged by Jack Smith in D.C. 95% of D.C. voted against Donald Trump in 2020. He got 5% of the vote. And there could be a a phenomenon of, I don't want to be the outlier here. I don't want to be the person in my liberal circles in Washington, D.C., who gets castigated or ostracized because I was the holdout juror preventing conviction. So I actually think that could cut both ways. That's that's a really interesting thought. So how optimistic or pessimistic are you at this point that there will be a uh, conviction? Trump's now been indicted four times. I'm quite certain he will be convicted. You can just look at that as a mathematical matter. The vast majority of all trials that go to a jury end up in conviction. The, the numbers vary You know, federally. There's no actually really reliable data on this. But federally, it's 70, 80%, if not more. State level can vary a bit, but it's over 50%. You multiply that by four shots at it, someone's going to convict him, especially in New York and Manhattan and DC, where the jury pools are so heavily tilted against him. One of the one of the conundrums is, to me, the strongest case, the most straightforward case is the classified documents case in Mar-a-Lago. The problem is your jury there is going to be drawn from Southern Florida, where Trump won Florida, but even in Southern Florida, he didn't, maybe he, he got more like 40 to 45%. But you're going to have four, five, six, seven Trump jurors, Trump voters on that jury. But I'm quite confident he will be convicted at some point of something. I just think mathematically it's inevitable. And and look, the proof is overwhelming, especially in the Mar-a-Lago case. I don't see how if you took Donald Trump's name out of it, it was any other person, he'd be convicted in two seconds. So I do think he'll get convicted of something and probably more than one thing. But the question is when, and the question is what consequences will he face? And then, of course, the biggest question looming over the whole thing is, will he be elected president again? Yeah. Let me run through that, by the way. If Donald Trump wins the election in 2024, these cases are over, basically. The two federal cases, the two DOJ cases, Trump will appoint an attorney general who has agreed, who on the condition that AG dismissed the cases and or Trump will order his AG to dismiss those cases and or Trump will try to pardon himself. I talk about this a bit in the book. 
It's never been attempted before. We don't actually know whether a president can pardon himself. People sometimes say, of course he cannot. That would go against our principles. Others say, of course he can, because the Constitution says the president has the pardon power and has no such limitation. We don't know. But the federal cases are doomed if Trump wins again. With respect to the two state cases, the Georgia case and the Manhattan case, I've heard some people say it's possible that you could still have these state level prosecutors charge him and try him and while he's sitting president. Absolutely not. There's no way that happens. There's no way the federal courts allow that to happen. There's no way the US Supreme Court allows that to happen. That would be the equivalent of let me just pick some random county. Uh, I don't even know, such and such county, Mississippi, that's hard red, the county prosecutor charging Joe Biden right now and putting him on trial. There's no way the federal courts would allow that to happen. It would interfere with federal supremacy. It would elevate the states over the federal government, it would cripple the federal government, as we talked about before. So those cases at best will be put on hold until 2029 and good luck having a trial in 2029 when Trump finishes his hypothetical second term for conduct that happened a decade ago. It's just not going to happen. Does the statute of limitations go, go on hold? When another good question. We, we don't know the answer to that. That's another possible defense he would have. He would say, hey, time ran out. Sorry. The counter would be it was on hold for constitutional reasons and therefore, therefore it shouldn't run against him. So I just want to quote from your book and maybe talk just in kind of general uh, way uh, toward the end here of the interview. You write the standard boilerplate prosecutor talking point goes something like this. We consider every case with precisely equal care and apply the same standards across the board, regardless of the defendant's uh, station in life. But that's simply not true. But it also leads inevitably to this outcome. The bar is higher for rich people, powerful people, and celebrities. Prosecutors require more proof, more certainty, and more layers of review and approval before they'll charge a boss. Prosecutors love to remind the world that we do our jobs without fear or favor, but the fact is we do approach certain subjects with more fear than others. First of all, I, I would, not, challenge isn't the right word, but if you know any prosecutor, read them, any listener, read them that passage and ask them if they disagree. It's impossible to have done the job and say that we actually treat everyone the same. And by the way, Look at DOJ's manual. You want proof? Exhibit A, the justice manual, the binding policy document of all of the Justice Department. There are various portions in there, and I quote them in the book, where DOJ's official policy is, if this person is a public office holder, if this person's prosecution is likely to generate headlines in the media, you have to go through higher and more and more levels of prosecutorial review. And just as a matter of logic and math, the more different prosecutors at a higher and higher level who are looking at it, A, they're going to require more and more proof, but B, there's more and more people who can say no, who can step on a case. So I give examples in the book. There's one example where we had a potential case against the guy who was a major league baseball player, not a mega well-known name. It wasn't like at the time, it wasn't the most famous player in the major leagues, but it was a guy who any baseball fan would know, was known to tens of millions of people. He'd made a couple all-star teams. It was a gambling case. It was a mob-related gambling case. If it wasn't him, I would have made the decision as a third-year prosecutor. I would have said, yeah, we're prosecuting or not. But because it was him, it had to go up four or five levels of command in my office. And we decided ultimately not to prosecute him. I think that was probably right. It was a low-level case. It wasn't it was small potatoes. But that case got so much more scrutiny by prosecutors. I give another example in the book where when I was a state prosecutor with the New Jersey Attorney General's office, we had a case involving somebody in the governor's office who was involved in Hurricane Sandy fraud. 
she was taking money you know, from Hurricane Sandy funds under fraudulent pretext. Because it involved someone in the governor's um, office, we had to go to way higher levels of review. That case got multiple times more scrutiny than a normal case before charging. So yeah, I think that's a fact that can't be denied. Yeah, and, and that's not corruption. That's just practicality, it sounds like. But, and, and I do say in the book, it's part of that is about preserving the, the positive view of this is it's a valid process because it, it matters that prosecutors' offices be trusted and respected by the public. And one of the jobs of any person who leads a prosecutor's office, and I had to deal with this when I led the Division of Criminal Justice, is you have to protect and preserve your office's credibility and public standing. And if you know that there will be an inordinate amount of public focus on one case, then you should be more careful about it. You should pay more attention to it because. I use Cy Vance again as an example. Uh, Cy Vance, when he was DA in Manhattan, oversaw tens of thousands of routine cases that went according to plan where justice was done and, and all's well. But there's two or three high profile examples in the book that I give, one of which was the, I think, light deal that he gave the Trump children. He initially gave Harvey Weinstein a pass that has caused his reputation and his office's reputation to take a massive hit in the public view. And that's a bad thing for prosecutors. It's a bad thing for our system. Yeah. I think the decision is very difficult either way. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think we've run out of time. So thank you so much, Ellie Honig, a former federal and state prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, trying and prosecuting organized crime cases, and also the senior legal analyst for CNN and the author of Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. It's been delightful talking to you. Thanks for having me, Stuart. I appreciate it. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.